Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today, nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario, where we are in the midst of the federal election campaign. And I know that I feel campaigns differently living in Ottawa than I did prior to moving here about a decade ago. So this is my fourth federal campaign, I think, since I moved to Ottawa. And there is just more discussion here. Maybe it's because so many people work in the public service or just the federal government is such an important part of the city's culture that there's, there's a lot of discussion about what's going on. And I don't know if that's happening elsewhere in the country, but from everything I've read, everything I can see, there is a lot of frustration with this particular campaign and the fact that, well, it's happening at all. And we'll see how it plays out after the votes are tallied here on September the 20th. And given that we are in the midst of the campaign, I wanted to revisit a discussion I had a couple of years ago with Amanda Bittner from Memorial University out in Newfoundland and her experience, her expertise on political leadership and the significance of political leadership. I really enjoyed this discussion and Amanda has such great insights into things like polling data, how it's used, partisan voting patterns and the role of the leader in swaying the votes. And it's interesting to me to think because in my own studies on radio in the 1930s, those are the first federal campaigns in which the leaders could actually speak to everybody across the country via radio. And that was a new thing. Before then, of course, the local candidates were so much more important in getting a party's message out than the leader. And things kind of flip once you get into radio and then television where the leader is the key. And so many people vote not for the individual candidates in their writings, but for the leaders. And I wanted to talk to Amanda about that dynamic and just in general, how we as voters tend to assess leaders when making our decisions and heading to the ballot box. So this discussion was recorded uh, back a couple years ago, but I think it's still very relevant and certainly relevant to what's going on today across the country. So let's get right to my chat with Amanda Bittner. So you are a political scientist, which is uh, you know different from the normal discipline we have on the show. And I'm, I'm just curious to start, you know, I've looked at political stuff and in particular party leadership from a historical perspective. You know, I've written about the 1930 election, the role of the, the two principal leaders in 1930. I'm curious from a political scientist, what is your approach when you're looking at leaders and trying to study elections? Like, like what is that methodology for you? Mm. So I'm a um, what we call a political behavior scholar, which basically means that I study people, um, <clears throat> usually voters. And so it's a lot of stats. It's a lot of survey research. It's a lot of data that comes from public opinion uh, surveys either that I conduct myself or that others have conducted and I take their data and take a look at it. Um, so very different from looking at the 1930 election, for example, because we don't have a lot of data that come from people in the 1930 election. Um, so I actually couldn't tell you what individuals said they felt about leaders back then because we didn't start doing survey research really until like the late 1940s, early 1950s. Um, so that's when kind of the first public opinion polls really started coming out. <clears throat> so different kind of methodology than what you're accustomed to. Um, and a lot of the stuff that I do right now looks at, you know, what people say um, they think about individual leaders and then you can look at that over time because a lot of surveys ask similar kinds of questions so you can do longitudinal analyses of of public opinion and, and voting behavior over time um, but it really relies on that public opinion data that's interesting because one of the other things that i do is i study the cbc and it's mm. always frustrating or at the very least it's extraordinarily difficult to try to study audience because we just have no idea, yeah. right? Like yeah. they would they would call people up and say, what are you listening to right now? Mm -hmm. And that's how they did ratings, which was 
cool, but I mean, you're calling 50 people. So it's, it's, you know, sample size was, was problematic. So mm -hmm. when, when you're looking at voters and what people are saying, how do we understand the question of sample size, right? That's immediately what popped in my head as you were, you were speaking. What constitutes a representative sample of the population? Oh man, I feel like we're in, in my intro to public opinion class right now. It's very exciting. We can talk about margins of error and research methodology and really bore your listeners a lot. Okay, I, I did, I, I should I should say, I did also read a bunch of articles about polling this morning uh, okay. relative to the current situation and where how people felt about, you know, here in Ontario, as we're recording this, we're just opening things up, like golf courses open over the weekend. You can go play tennis. Uh, stores with street fronts uh, are starting to open again. So, you know, I've been reading a lot of articles that include polling data about how people feel about this. Mm -hmm. But then I'm like, does this actually represent everybody? Because you get to like the footnote and it says we called a thousand people. Yeah. So I would say that um, historically, the way that scientific polling is done, if they've got about a thousand people, um, and it was done through random selection and it kind of broadly maps onto the census in terms of, you know, about half are women and about, you know, you have people from the different provinces and it's, it's probably about right. And you can do it with a thousand people. That would be, that would be decent. Um, where it gets tricky is that you don't always want to break that down too far because if you've got a thousand people and half of them are women and half of them are men and, you know, a hundred come from Atlantic Canada and 300 come from Quebec and 400 come from Ontario, then it's going to be hard to understand, for example, the views of Atlantic Canadian women on something because it's just far too few people that are included in that sample. So, but the, the thousand that's, that's, that's normal if done right. I mean, of course, there's lots of examples of, of badly done polls um, where a thousand does, it doesn't matter. Um, but if done well, yes, that's a, a good representative sample. And it, you should be able to map onto um, what Canadians or whatever population, whether it's Americans, Canadians, British, whoever, um, think about a given issue. Yep. So your primary focus through your career has been on uh, political elections, party leadership, you know, one of your books or your first book was called Platform or Personality, the Role of Party Leaders in Elections. And I'm curious, you know, how do we extrapolate out what people think in in these polls to some larger conclusions? Because oftentimes I'm thinking about what the question is and mm -hmm. how do we ensure that questions don't lead us to answers that we want? Mm -hmm. And so, like so, so how do you... So when, when I see a poll that says, like, say, say in an election, like, oh, you know, 30 percent of the population supports this party, 30 percent supports this mm -hmm. party, 25 this party. Is the question as simple as who do you support or like how do how do we ensure that? And how do you as, as someone who's taking this data factor in the questions? Mm -hmm. Well, so I would never take um, polling data and take a look at it without knowing more about the survey itself, which, which includes not only what questions were asked, but also the order in which they were asked, um, the specific question wording, um, because you can ask a person what their vote choice is, or you know what party they plan to support, or what party they, party they plan to vote for, or who they plan to vote for, in all kinds of different ways, right? Um, and so the way that these questions are asked definitely affects the kinds of answers that we get. So there are you know, there are kind of standard practices and there are lots of really, well, I mean, this is where you discover what a nerd I am. Um, there are lots of really cool studies that, you know, compare these different question formats and different ways of asking questions to get a sense of whether or not the question itself affects the answers that we get. And of course, you know, intuitively the answer is yes. yes and the data also support that, right? That you know, how we ask questions absolutely matters for the answers that we're going to get. Um, and this is part of the reason why kind of the, the science and the art of public opinion polling is so important because, it, you know, one of the critiques that gets um, placed at the feet of any kind of data is that, oh, well, you can make data say anything, which on one level is true, 
right? In that, yeah, if, if I want to get a particular kind of outcome, I can jerry-rig it by asking questions a particular kind of way. Um, but at the same time, you know, questions that are asked well, um, appropriately, that really allow, you know, respondents or the people that are answering those questions to, to understand the question and to be able to answer it. Um, and if you combine that with solid polling methodology with, you know, a good sample and, and, and good recruiting and all that kind of stuff can lead you to a really great, um, really good insight into what the population thinks about a given thing. So, you know, in the case of vote choice, for example, one of the ways that it tends to get asked um, in public opinion polls, but also by kind of surveys that are run by academics is, you know, uh, if the election were held tomorrow or today, you know, which party would you vote for? Right. So that's that's obviously a different kind of question from which party leader is your favorite or which party leader is trustworthy or to what extent do you feel like Justin Trudeau is trustworthy on a scale of one to 10. And so these are all very different kinds of questions um, and allow us to get more nuanced understandings of voters' perceptions of these different either things like parties or people or policies or other kinds of issues that may come up in an election or whatever. Um, and so, you know, one of the things you were mentioning earlier that, you know, studying audience is really tricky. You ask 50 people what they're watching right now, and that's where you get your, your ratings information. Um, and I think that, you know, that's studying people is really tricky because a lot of the time they don't always know why they think the things that they think. Right. So, you know, I can say to you, Sean, OK, you like history. You study the 1930 election. Why did you study 1930? And you will give me an answer of some kind. Right. But is it the truth? How do I know? Do you really right. know what the truth is? Do you really know what what made you get into that in the first place, as opposed to you know an election that happened five years before or after or whatever? Um, and I think that a lot of the time where survey research kind of goes wrong is we try to ask voters to answer questions that they really aren't equipped to answer. So one of the the my favorite examples of this. And again, I'm just giving you so much of a window into my nerdy sense of self here. But uh, one of the questions that's been asked for years on surveys in Canada and elsewhere is, you know, thinking back to your last to the last election when you voted, why did you vote the way you did? Was it because of the party? Was it because of the policy? Was it because of the candidate? Um, and first of all, I think if you ask that question too far too far after the event, number one, you're not going to get a real good uh, representation of, of the truth to that question because so much time has passed and people after the fact are really great at kind of post hoc theorizing why they did the things that they did, which has nothing to do with the reality of why they did the thing that they did. Um, but the second thing about that is that it, asking a question like that really um, – it, it sets voters up for failure in terms of, of representing the truth in the sense that, you know, so, for example, let's say I have a grandmother. I mean, I do have a grandmother, but let's say she was a partisan. She is not. She's not into politics. So my grandmother has always voted liberal her entire life or NDP or because what like doesn't matter, whatever party. So she's a, a lifelong partisan. Her mother before her was a partisan. Her mother's mother was a partisan. They always vote the same way. And, you know, you ask my grandmother that question and the answer she gives you is, oh, well, I always vote for the candidate. I never vote for the party. It just so happens that every single time she has voted for the same party, even if the candidate has shifted, right? So we have this idea that, you know, leaders shouldn't matter or that partisanship shouldn't matter or that voters should be fully informed and constantly deliberating and therefore thinking about policies all the time. And I think that voters also know that that idea about what a a responsible and engaged citizen is and how they ought to behave and how they ought to report their behavior. And so they, they respond accordingly. So the fact is, is that my grandmother is a partisan and therefore she votes the way she does every single time. And I can predict how she's going to vote based on her partisanship. Um, she, yeah, she might like this particular candidate or she might hate this particular policy or whatever. But at the end of the day, her explanation of why she votes the way she does doesn't center around her partisanship, even though her partisanship is the reason she votes the way she does. Um, so a lot of the time, you know, we ask voters to answer questions that they can't answer because they have these blinders on um, for whatever reason. And we all have them and we, the blinders are self, they're subconscious. We don't, we don't know that they exist there. We think that we're answering the question to the best of our abilities and we are, but you know, our brains, 
they do things out of control a lot of the time. And so one of the tricky things about survey research is asking the question or asking a series of questions to get at an answer that you want to get at um, so that you can understand, for example, the impact of partisanship on somebody's vote choice or the impact of a candidate on somebody's vote choice or the impact of a policy, um, you know, policy perspective on vote choice without making them answer the question themselves specifically. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, for so, sure. Because like, I was even thinking like in a municipal election, right? When we mm -hmm. had one in Ottawa a couple of years ago, I don't know, time doesn't mean anything anymore. I think it was a couple of years ago. <laughs> no, but, it doesn't. Um, yeah. And, and I, I was thinking, it occurred to me that, you know, I, I was looking at all the candidates in my um, whatever district, I don't know what they call them at the municipal level, um, that in my area, and you know when I when I've done this in the past, it it's a little easier at the provincial or federal level because they have the letter next to them, right? Mm -hmm. And and you have a sense of what the party as a whole stands for, and therefore what the individual sure. as the MP or MPP or MLA, depending on where you are in the country, mm -hmm. what they will vote for. With mm -hmm. municipal politics, they're not identified in the same way. So that partisanship that you're talking about, or my perceived notions of what that party will do isn't mm -hmm. there because that person isn't identified as such. So it, it actually took me a lot longer to figure out who I was going to vote for in the municipal election than in provincial or federal politics. Yeah, I believe that. And I mean, you're not, that's, that's not strange. That's totally reasonable and totally, you know, predictable. And also the fact that you still navigated that terrain and went and voted says something about you. So I'm going to, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, Sean, you're not normal. Um, <laughs> you're an, an unusual voter in that sense, because one of the things that happens with the lack of parties at the municipal level is that turnout is really low in those right. elections. And municipal elections are what we call kind of low information elections. Um, that, you know, the average voter, and this is true at all levels, but it's especially true at, at, at the city kind of level, you know, we have other things that we have to do in our lives. We have families, we have jobs, we have hobbies, we have things we've got to, you know, keep up with. We don't have the time to know everything there is to know about garbage collection policy or sanitation or whatever. And we don't have the um, the time and the energy and the, the kind of wherewithal to go in depth and to do all this research on who these candidates are. So parties are a shortcut for us. They allow us to figure out kind of what we should do on election day. Um, and that's actually a really good thing that they provide us with key information because parties take stances on issues and parties signal what their stances are and really effective parties, parties who are doing a good job from um, a researcher's perspective. So like if we think about the, the, the kind of the theory of what, what role parties ought to have in, in political life and what their job is for voters to send these signals, parties that do this well, um, they're fantastic. And, and that's exactly what voters need because voters cannot do the job of finding out all the information themselves. Not only do we have brains that, again, like I mentioned, they, they don't, we don't have full control over them and there's limits, cognitive limits to what our brains can handle. So that's number one. But then we also have, like I said, jobs, hobbies, families, and so on. So we lack the capacity to go and get all this information. And so when we have parties providing us with these signals, this is really key and it allows us to engage with politics in a way that we otherwise have difficulty doing so. So, you know, the, the odd person um, like yourself will go and we'll do some more research and we'll do some more digging and see what they can find out about the different people and what they stand for and, and how they might behave in office or how they have behaved in office if they're, you know, coming back into the, into the fray from before. Um, but a lot of people will just tune out and they'll say, you know what, this is way too tricky. It doesn't matter anyway. I'm not going to bother voting. And so you can see at different levels of government that depending on how much, how much information is readily available, voter turnout tends to go down when, when things are challenging. I, I will say before, I won't give myself too, too much credit because I do live in a, a major uh, metropolitan center that does have good local media. So, you know, if, if I lived mm. in a small rural community, it'd be a lot harder to get that information, right? Like I go into CBC Absolutely. Ottawa and, yep. you know, things are laid out in a much more uh, clear way. So it, it's not, you know, it, it's in places where I'm looking anyway, right? So I, I, th I think, you know, that's also an appeal for local media the, and the mm -hmm. importance oh, of, of local press. 
Absolutely. And I mean, the more information that, that voters are able to absorb, um, the more the more information that journalists provide them and the more analysis that journalists are doing, the better. Right. So in a world where I mean, journalism today is very different from what it was 20, 30 years ago. And I think that the job of the journalist is much more challenging, especially in a world where, you know, you're, you're constantly on your Twitter while you're going to and from an interview or a press conference. You have to write something up while you're in the car on the way back and, and having the time to kind of do that deep research and analysis does not really exist in the way that once did. Um, and I think that that is, it's a real, it's really too bad for voters because we, as a result, don't get the kind of rich, in-depth thinking and analysis that comes from research that yeah. journalists once had more time to do than they have now. For sure. And yeah, and the need to not only sort of the rush of it, but the immediacy that it's not just a case of you file at whatever 10 o'clock at night and it comes out the next mm -hmm. day. It's, you know, you can file a story at 9am at 1pm at 4pm. And like these stories are con and they constantly have to churn through them. I, I think that's a part of it as well. Absolutely. Sort of that need for, for constant content. Um, so I, I'm curious too, you know, the, you wrote an article in 2018 entitled leaders always matter. The persistence of personality in Canadian elections. Mm -hmm. And one of the narratives that that I have discussed in some of my own work before is the importance of radio in increasing the significance of party leaders in that they could now, for the first time, speak to the entire country at once. And before, oh. they would have had to go through the local candidates to get the party's message across in an unfiltered mm -hmm. way. Uh, certainly there was newspapers and stuff, but there were, in with some cases, problems with getting unfiltered messages out to the public. But And radio offered this opportunity to connect directly to people all across the country. And that served to increase the significance of the party leader. But this mm -hmm. article, as you discuss in it, that the leadership and who was the leader is a significant factor, particularly with personality. And I'm just curious, while you were writing that and just in the totality of your research, what is it about party leadership or a party leader that people are looking for? And why does the attention of the mm. voting public center on these now, what were there six people who were at the debates this time? You know, like, mm. wh why do we focus so much on them? Well, I mean, I think that on a certain level, you've just answered your question to somewhat. Um, so, you know, thinking about the role of the media, the media focuses a lot on leaders, um, focusing on the horse race, who's ahead, who's behind, what they did today, and so on. And they focus on leaders um usually more than they focus on policy issues. I think that because they're more exciting, you can, you know, talk about their family life, you can talk about kind of what, what political gaffe they've performed that day. Whereas getting into the heavy kind of nitty gritty of policy issues is much um, more difficult. It's a bit more boring, let's face it. Um, and so from the perspective of selling, you know, media content as well, it's, it's, less it's more of a dud i guess um so the media focuses more on leaders and therefore the idea is that you know we as voters as consumers of the media also focus more on leaders and i think that's that's broadly fair that over time um media does focus on on leaders more than they have in the past and i think in particular with the advent of television for example um the way that information is communicated to voters is different and and voters have changed as well over time right so like i think about that even now like when i get um a notification about a news story let's say i'm looking through my twitter feed i love to read the news i don't like to watch the news and so if i get you know i follow a journalist on twitter who's a tv journalist and you know the clicking on the link of the title of of his of the thing that he's promoting actually gets me to like a YouTube video, I turn it off immediately and I wish that there was, that he had written something about this. So I close that. Right. And we're all different kinds of consumers. Um, and so we, we kind of funnel through things in a way that works for us as well, but the kind of the seeing people's faces and there's, there's a really famous story about, you know, um, elections in kind of the fifties and sixties when TV first began, where 
voters who listened to a debate over the radio versus voters who, who watched the debate on TV had two very different ideas of the leaders at the time because one appeared to be sweaty. Meanwhile, the sweaty one was actually quite eloquent in the way that he spoke. And you could see the sweat on TV, but you couldn't see it on the radio. And therefore, the radio version was more compelling. Um, and so I think the kinds of images that we get from from media affect the way we perceive um, our leaders. And so so there's there's definitely that. I think also, though, if you think about it, and I mentioned this before in terms of, you know, voter levels of knowledge and what voters know about politics and, and complex policy issues. There's a lot of tough stuff that governments have to decide um, and understanding the ins and outs of tax policies or of, you know, um, the benefits and pros and cons of fracking versus pipelines versus whatever. This is all, it's, it's challenging stuff. Um, and so trying to figure out how we feel about those things is not that easy. But figuring out how we feel about people is pretty easy for us. We do it every day. I meet somebody new and I decide within a few minutes, do I like them or not? Are they worth my time? And, and evaluating political candidates is really the same kind of process in that we see them on TV or we read them in the news and we decide, okay, is this person trustworthy? Is this person an idiot? Is this person competent? Is this person honest? Um, are they just shining me on right now? Um, and these are the kinds of considerations that voters are making. And it's, it's automatic and it's subconscious. We don't realize that we're evaluating um, the trustworthiness of a given candidate in that moment, but we are. And we have lots of practice doing this because we do it with people that we meet every single day. Um, and and, the, and the, the interesting thing about this, at least, I mean, I think there's a lot of things that are interesting about looking at party leaders, but one of the things that I, I come back to over and over again is this thinking about kind of what it means to be a citizen in a, de in a democracy. Um, and we have these kind of historic, grandiose philosophical ideas about citizens where they are very engaged, they're very involved, they're very informed, they do research, they debate, they discuss, they, you know, they follow around politicians, see what they're up to, they get engaged with their family members, are talking about politics constantly. And, and we have this idea that that's the ideal kind of democratic citizen, right? And of course, we know that the average citizen is nothing like that. Right. They tune out from politics. They're busy following the Kardashians instead or whatever. Um, and again, because, you know, thinking about the fact that we have jobs and families and hobbies and we've got to cook our, our food, we've got to clean our houses and things like that, that we don't have as much time for that kind of rich deliberation, decision making discussion that we as I think a lot of the kind of political theorists at least once upon a time, but even still imagine that citizens ought to be engaged in. So, so citizens are not these ideal citizens in that kind of way. Um, and so we have this idea that, you know, as a citizen, I should be thinking about, you know, policy issues and I should really be doing some research on these and deciding how to vote based on whatever issue that, that is, is really important at the moment, as opposed to deciding whether or not I think Justin Trudeau is trustworthy and voting on that basis, um, because that's frivolous, right, quote yeah. unquote. Versus the kind of more heavy, more serious, more thoughtful approach of studying policy. But if you think about it, um, the world is changing. Our ideas about appropriate policy options change over time as well. And as, you know, as we learn more and as we do research, hopefully our ideas about what to do in response to policy problems should change as well. So in theory, politicians' ideas should change over time. And I think that a lot of the time we have this idea that, you know, leaders shouldn't flip-flop on their policy ideas. That's bad. But actually, I would like to know that, you know, after doing some research, my representative changed his or her mind about some given policy issue once they learned that there were other ways to do things and so on. So flip-flopping itself may not be a bad thing. It might actually be a sign of strength and of research. Um, so I'm, I'm going on a tiny little right. tangent here, but the point that I'm trying to make is that we have this idea that, you know, policy um, decisions are the way to evaluate whether or not a democracy is healthy and, and focusing our attention on leaders is not a healthy democracy um, because that just means that voters are taking the easy way out and they're not doing a good job, they're not engaged with politics and so on. But going back to this idea that as the world changes, our policy op options change and, you know, our solutions to problems change and so on, you know, Justin Trudeau, might change his ideas about a whole slew of policy issues. Um, but whether or not he's trustworthy probably doesn't change that much because his personality is probably pretty fixed at this point. And a voter can actually glean important information if they consider his personality 
when deciding how to vote because, you know, we can say in advance, well, you know, the world might change in ways that we can't predict, but I can predict that he's going to behave this way because that's his personality. And whatever, I'm, I'm not suggesting that he's trustworthy or not. I'm just giving an example of a trait. Um, and so by evaluating the personality of leaders and determining how we feel about their competence, their intelligence, their honesty, their trustworthiness, all those kinds of key, key traits that will get people through life, traits that we all have ourselves and that we evaluate in others every day, this is actually good because those are more reliable as predictors of future behavior in office on a certain level than what they say their opinion is about, I don't know, clean drinking water on reserves or pipelines or uh, feminism or whatever the issue might be that we want to focus on. Um, so my, my kind of take from all this stuff is that, you know, leaders do matter. They mattered in the past. I'm willing to bet, and I haven't read your book on the 1930 election, but I'm willing to bet that leaders mattered then too. Um, and yeah, the times have changed and media has changed and how we report on things has changed. But leaders were important in the minds of voters back then. We just don't have the same kinds of data that we have now to be able to kind of track it over time in the same kind of way. Um, and that that's not a bad thing, that knowing how you feel about somebody is actually a decent and not even just a shortcut because you have less information. It's actually a good way to decide or to, to evaluate or to judge how somebody is likely to perform in office. And if you think about leaders as potentially the individuals who are vying who are vying for the top job to become the prime minister, then actually who they are should matter on a certain level because they're going to have that most important job in our country, and, and that's important. Then how do we come to terms with the changing perception of them and and a good example i think would be uh, stephen harper that you know mm -hmm. St stephen harper in terms of personality seemed pretty consistent right from my observation of, of him yeah. and yet there there seems to and this happens all the time with with leaders there just seems to be fatigue that mm. they're there and then they're not and it's sort of this natural ebb and flow that's happened throughout this country's history where we've gone from conservative to liberal government just back and forth and and sometimes it seems as simple as the the voters the voting population just got tired with whoever was in charge and was ready for a change but if if people are able to assess leaders and assess personality and personality is is a relatively static thing you are who you are how do we try to come to grips with this historical thing of we just get tired of that person or do we get tired of them? Is that just an oversimplification? Well, I mean, yes and no. I, I think that, sure, we definitely get tired of people in the same way that we get tired of people in our daily lives as well. Um, I mean, thinking about Stephen Harper specifically versus thinking about leaders in general who go through maybe a honeymoon phase and then are perceived more negatively. I mean, they are evaluated against real stuff, right? So by the end, Stephen Harper was not um, thought to be super trustworthy. I think that folks still thought he was pretty competent, though, at the end. Like, I think that if you ask people now what they think about Stephen Harper, they're likely to say now that, oh, well, he was pretty smart. He was a policy wonk. He really knew his stuff. Like, I, I don't think that part has changed. But, but whether or not he's perceived to still be the best person to run the country is a different question, right? So mm -hmm. your, 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 your personality traits might be perceived broadly the same as they were at the start, but whether or not I vote for you might change based on the world that exists in a different time. And certainly people do get sick of, of what they have. And like, I think a, a good example of that is the 2015 election here in Newfoundland and Labrador, where the election outcome was a foregone conclusion. Everybody knew the Liberal Party was going to win. Um, and we had had years of, of PC government here in, in the province. And, you know, this sort of gradual decline of that government began when Danny Williams quit as leader, and he was a very popular leader. People loved him. They love him still. I think if we were to, to conduct a poll today and ask voters how they feel about Danny Williams, I think he's still quite, quite popular. Um, but he was no longer you know, at the helm of that party. That party was facing significant challenges in terms of governance. Um, there had been a global recession and then all these kind of big energy projects and things like that. There was a significant appetite for change. 
Um, and the interesting thing about that election, so there was this, this foregone conclusion, everybody knew the Liberal Party was going to win. Turnout actually went down in that election. Part of it is because, you know, well, if you know what the outcome's going to be, why bother to even get involved in the first place? Um, but after the government was elected, a lot of folks were upset that the new Liberal government um, didn't actually bring change and didn't actually seem to understand the magnitude of the economic problems facing the province and things like that. And, you know, these were things that were apparent during the election campaign. And I remember going to an exercise class and speaking to some of the women that I was in class with um, during the election campaign. And one of the women saying, I'm so tired of hearing about all these policy challenges in our province. I just want to have some hope. And so she equated change with hope, even though it wasn't obviously that clear to a lot of people what plan the what plan the Liberal Party had to bring in, into into place, um, or what that hope was really tied to beyond this appetite for change. And so I think you know, in that particular election, you know, leaders change and things like that. But there's still these these whims that take place that are based in real stuff. So based on the economy, based in uh, policy issues that have cropped up in that particular time that can mean that voters think that a particular leader is not optimal for whatever reason. Um, and so the leader, you know, it, the leader matters and voters definitely think about leaders when they're heading to the ballot box, but some leaders matter in a particular election a lot more than leaders matter in a, a different election, for example. Um, so it, it's not like, leader is the only thing that matters. It's one factor amongst many, which includes the economy, which includes partisanship, which includes all kinds of other factors as well that voters consider when they're heading to the ballot box. Um, but yeah, absolutely, people could get sick of, of a leader. 100% they can. Do you think the significance of leadership and the, the role of personality in in creating this I, I, I the word cult of personality i think gets thrown right. around a little too liberally uh, in 2020 but i mm -hmm. mean certainly the 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 personality of that person who is the, the head of a party really does matter do you think it affects the quality of individual we get because now we're in a situation where you not only have to have good ideas or hopefully you have good ideas and are engaged in the the policy of what's going on but you have to sound a certain way you have to look a certain way you know somebody like me who's a bald man probably is not going to be a leader uh, again right it, it doesn't show as well on television as someone with a nice full head of hair you know the, yeah. these things seem to matter a lot because you know if you're on tv for five seconds in a clip that really matters how you look and how you sound so yeah. i'm just curious in your experience in looking at this does the significance of personality potentially affect the quality of individuals and is that something that pollsters have looked at in terms of the perception of the population or is there any sense that personality and quality of political skill are somehow not incongruous but maybe there's not a venn diagram there you know, I'm, so I'm just thinking about you, the bald man, and yeah. whether or not that's kind of a, an ideal political leader for a second here. And <laughs> it, it, it has me thinking not so much about your baldness. We haven't actually met. I haven't, I haven't seen your head. Um, but it has me thinking about this idea that we have. It's, it's sort of in the literature called the kind of presidential prototype. That there's this idea we have out there of a particular kind of person who is the ideal leader. And so maybe it includes hair. I mean, the, the, the prototype, as it's talked about in the literature, doesn't talk so much about hair. It's more about personality traits. But that this individual is trustworthy, is honest, is a strong leader, is competent, um, is intelligent, has a kind of moral character that we can identify. There's a bit of authenticity to this person and so on. Um, and the reason that I'm, I'm thinking about this or kind of tangentially linking about this is is thinking about so let's go back to the 2016 american election which i think is one where a lot of folks think about it's one of the kind of big elections in our recent history that we can all point to to say okay well let's look at the leaders in that particular race and and think about what that means and what leadership means because what you the, so this was clinton versus trump right yep this was after obama um so 
Uh, and then so you had the first black man president, and then you have the first woman candidate from a major party um, in the country. Um, and so, you know, you're worried that you might not be electable because you're bald. But, I mean, Hillary, she's got a lot of other parts that um, I think you probably don't have. Yeah. And so thinking about what it means to be a leader and the role that race plays, the role that gender plays, and how that gets intertwined with our ideas of, of strength of leadership, of these kind of idealized traits and, and kind of things that we want to see in a leader. Because I think that the, the kind of assertive, aggressive, strong, these, these kind of quintessential prototypes of leaders don't map onto our ideas and stereotypes about women, right? Where women should be um, soft and empathetic and nice. kind to others and caring and things like that. And, and, and that we expect women to hold these characteristics and we punish the ones that don't, right? She's an iron lady. She's too tough. She's mm -hmm. too bitchy, whatever. Um, and then you have somebody like Trump who on a lot of levels does not fit the bill either in terms of trustworthiness, in terms of intelligence, in terms of these kinds of key characteristics of, of presidents as well. Um, and so just sort of thinking through the kind of the way that personality can intersect with other kinds of identities and other kinds of stereotypes we have about people um, and how that's going to affect whether or not these individuals are perceived to be good leaders and whether they actually are good leaders. And I'm, I'm not even going to entertain a conversation about whether or not Trump is a good leader, because I think that's just heading down a rabbit hole we don't have time for today. Um, but, you know, gender was front and center in that election and not necessarily because of Hillary even. Right. So right. she was obviously a woman and so on. But he was performing his gender and continues to perform it on a daily basis. Right. Where he's talking about he's sort of trying to show off what it means to be a man. And he's trying to, to play up that, you know, play up that role of big, tough. Uh, bravado, gunslinging, straight shooter. I don't even know. I'm 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 getting off the rails here. <laughs> um, but so so thinking about kind of what it means to be an ideal leader and what the role of sure facial hair or a head of hair or you know being a woman versus being a man versus being black versus being white. Um, these things all matter, and these things again, a lot of them are are subconscious considerations for voters, right? So most voters don't say, "Oh, I don't want to elect a woman." They would never say that out loud, but it is the case that gender certainly played a role in that election, and that the woman did not win, despite the fact that she's probably a lot more qualified than the person who did win, right? right. Whether or not you like the Clintons is a different issue, um, but um, certainly, you know, the quality of the candidate. Um, didn't come to play, but what did come into play certainly was partisanship, right? So Republicans voted Republican, and he just happened to be the leader of the Republican Party, and so that made a difference. Um, and then the ones who didn't like him probably stayed home, and there were a lot of, you know, white women who voted Republican and so went against their gender. I'm, I've, I've got air quotes right here, but you can't see them, because um, there's a lot of folks that were upset with white women for for choosing, you know, a rapist. Um which shouldn't make sense, right, in terms of self-interest of women and things like that. But partisanship is, is a big factor determining how we perceive the world, um, how we perceive the kind of political landscape around us and, and how we how we filter through these personality traits. Right. Mm -hmm. So a lot of folks saw him as being a strong leader. Um, and I think that his gender was a part of that. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking too in terms of you know physicality. You know, mm -hmm. in in that particular election, you know, I think of the debate that was like the town hall style where they could walk around, mm -hmm. and he's 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 sort of literally in, in the yeah. shot, right? Just sort of leering over her. Yeah. And like because yeah. he's a he's a big dude. I think he's like six three or yeah. six four or something, right? So he's a he's a big guy, um, and so physically he's a lot bigger than her, and mm -hmm. sort of he used that in the the way the the shot was structured because he he knows a lot about television obviously he knew which cameras were on him and where he can stand to have a visual dominating appearance over her and using his size to to his benefit and it's the same way that you know, you, you reference the Nixon Kennedy debates and how mm -hmm. people saw, on television saw it one way and on another and now they're they're every time I I always read this article whenever it comes out it, it comes out every election cycle. The, the the back and forth over the conditions in the debate room 
you mm-hmm. know, what temperature it's going to be, where the yeah. lights are, where the cameras are. Like I, I read that article with so much interest whenever it comes out. I find mm-hmm. it so interesting because, you know, yeah, like sort of I like to joke about, you know, being bald, but like where a light is above my head if I'm on TV will really matter mm-hmm. uh, in terms of how I would come across on television. Same thing, you know, if, if someone likes it, the room cooler versus likes it hotter, that's going to affect how, how comfortable they are. George H.W. Bush famously looked at his watch mm-hmm. during a question yeah. in a debate, right? So should you wear a watch or not? Probably not if you're instinctually going to look at it. Yeah. Like, like these sort of physical things mm-hmm. that at their core have nothing really to do with how good you're going to be as a prime minister or as a president or as a premier or as a mayor. Mm -hmm. And yet they seem to be primary factors for people in determining how they feel about an individual, which is independent of their qualifications. Mm -hmm. Part of that, though, is about reporting, right? So Mm -hmm. most people don't watch debates. Most people hear about the debates secondhand from media or whatever. And so one of the interesting things that I've seen um, come across my desk in terms of of research studies is is people assessing the actual debates and then looking at media coverage of those debates. And so looking at, like, so you're describing Trump the way he's standing over her in a particular moment and things like that. And so looking at the actual physicality of what happens with the actual words, the actual finger pointing, the fist raising, all that kind of stuff, and comparing it to how often that stuff gets coverage in the media. And the interesting thing is that, um, I mean, it's not surprising. The media wants to cover exciting stuff, right? And so raising your fist and shaking your finger and, and leering over somebody in a creepy way, these are fun things to cover in the media because they are going to sell um, and they're exciting and they're, you know, titillating or whatever. But they often get it wrong. And so as a result, they will show the debate differently from how it really actually played out. And it, usually they'll do it in a way that's counter to stereotypes. So for example, um, they will um, cover a lot or sort of cover more heavily situations where women behave aggressively. So, you know, they might be behave aggressively in, in kind of real terms, 10% of the debates, they were aggressive and whatever, however you want to count that, whether it's minutes or actions or whatever, compared to their male counterparts. But they get 40% or 50% of the coverage of what is aggressive in these media stories. So you get this picture of this really aggressive woman candidate. Meanwhile, she didn't really do anything compared to everybody else. Um, and so it's it's neat to think about these these considerations that that parties have to make, right? So the the handlers, the the kind of the party organization, the people in the back rooms who are who are picking and choosing and very carefully trying to kind of groom their candidates to look and behave a certain kind of way. And we always talk about Preston Manning having taken a lot of elocution lessons to get rid of his kind of Western Canadian twang as he spoke, right? So we have particular ideas of how people ought to behave and how they ought to look and sound in these debates and their in their campaign activities and so on. But then how it actually gets portrayed by the media is, is often separate. Um, and so these these so-called mistakes, like looking at your watch, um, they get up, they get sort of extra play, extra time um, in relation to what the reality was and that that can definitely change voters' perceptions as well, right? So for the voters who aren't watching the debates but hear about it after the fact, the way that he looked over her or, or whatever, um, it's big news. But it might have only been a tiny part of the of the actual event itself. Um, but somehow it still ends up defining the way that they interact and the way that they, um, that they are perceived by voters as a result of this. I just think it's really cool. Mm-hmm, for sure. And I want to get back a little bit to how this then affects polling and, and the numbers. Cause one of the things that, and you mentioned this, the 2015 uh, Newfoundland and Labrador election, this idea that it was mm-hmm. a foregone conclusion, people didn't come out. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. this is something that I've been curious about, too, is, you know, polling can be very accurate and it can be very helpful. But mm-hmm. in, in my life, I've lived in ridings, uh, federal, both federal and provincial ridings, where I didn't feel as though I, I mattered because the, the polls were mm-hmm. such that, you know, th- this party was going to win by this margin and a significant margin. Right. Like I grew yeah. up in I grew up in a, in a riding that was, you know, 75 percent. And I felt, you know, what, like almost what's the point? And, and mm-hmm. as, as we study this, does polling, like do pollsters ask voters 
if polls affect them and whether they're engaged or not? Okay, so I would say that's an example of the kind of question you wouldn't want to ask the voter. <laughs> sure. Because they would give you a, the, the wrong response, right? right? They'd say, oh, no, polls don't matter. But I, I mean, I have colleagues who study the impact of polls and who find that actually polls do have an influence on voters and the information that, that pollsters give to voters in advance. So like, you know, hey, have you heard about this story to do with whatever? How does that make you feel? Or, or whatever way of framing the question might be. But this definitely affects the way voters think about things. So information provided is information provided and voters do get some information from polls. Um, and I think this, this speaks to, so, you know, you talked about this riding that was 75%, you know, one party It's very discouraging to live and to grow up in that kind of a riding. Um, because it doesn't feel very exciting. And one of the, the kind of key ways that politics is exciting is through elections. It's, it's, it offers us once every four to five years chance for parties to get engaged with citizens to actually communicate their ideas their ideas, to inform citizens of stuff, to get them educated, mobilized, socialized, thinking about politics and kind of in this, in well, I mean, again, minoritiveness is coming through, but in this really exciting way of thinking about what it means to be a citizen and, and what are the stakes and, and what can we do and how can I get engaged and things like that. And so in these elections that are either super lopsided or else they're, they're not lopsided, but nothing seems to be actually at stake. Like, nothing major is happening or it's a foregone conclusion or, you know, it's like, well, I could vote for this party or I could vote for that party, but what's the difference anyway? Like these are not, this is not good for democracy. What we need to see is elections where parties engage voters and parties get voters to realize what's at stake and parties excite the voters and get them informed and loop them in and, and sort of draw them into the, into the kind of exciting moment that is being engaged in politics because they're going to lose them again two years later when there's nothing going on, at least no election going on. And it's just like the mundane governance that stuff that's happening. Um, and so it's especially tough, this thinking about, you know, engaging elections is especially tough when we have a series of boring elections when we're at the start of our own lives as voters. So I'll never forget the first time that I voted. Again, I realize I'm a huge nerd, but that was very exciting for me. When I was allowed to vote at age 18, it was a big deal. And I was super jazzed. And I, I remember the election. I remember who I voted for. I remember all the excitement, all that kind of stuff. But if I had been now, granted, I'm a little bit weird. So putting that part aside, though, if I had been in socialized into an election that was actually really boring or that had a, a, a foregone conclusion or that nothing was really at stake. And so I didn't vote. What would be happening? Because those those first few elections for us as individuals are those kind of formative moments in our lives that define us and determine whether or not we're going to be voters for life or non-voters for life. Because um, voting is a habit, right? And so you develop those habits early and your first three elections, if they're really terrible, boring, horrible, why bother kind of experiences, then you're going to end up being a habitual non-voter. And that is, I think, we can lay the blame for that at the, at the feet of parties. Um, again, thinking about the role that parties play in society, the role is to educate, is to excite, is to mobilize, is to inform. And if these things aren't happening, it's because they're not doing their job seriously enough. Um, and so all the voter turnout declines that we've seen globally, I think that it's fair to say that that's a, a, a good chunk of the blame for that is parties and party actions and parties not taking their job seriously enough in terms of of clearly laying out what the stakes are in this election and and helping voters to understand why it's important that they're involved. And then to bring that around, then it would be the leaders too, right? Would it be a, a, Absolutely. a right a lack of whether it's charisma or or whatever it is to bring people out and to excite people? That, that's something I've I've really sensed in the past few years that when people are going and voting it's mm -hmm. it feels a lot of times that they're sort of holding their nose in voting and yep. th there's no real enthusiasm for the the individuals themselves and that's really up to the people who are the leaders is to generate mm -hmm. enthusiasm behind them and, and to be that person that you know, to use the sports metaphor, they, they say that, you know, the best coaches are the ones the players, you know, they feel like they mm -hmm. would run through a wall for. And, yep. you know, you just don't get that sense with any of the, the leaders over the past however many years. Or certainly in the, uh, I can't speak for all the provinces, but certainly in the provincial elections that I have paid attention to, mm -hmm. that has not seemed to be the case. And certainly federally, it, in the fall, it didn't feel like anyone was, like, thrilled to, to go to 
sort of go to the mat for anybody with the with the exception of some of my friends who are NDP supporters and really like uh, sing. And, you know, he seems like a very char right. charismatic guy. Uh, but, um, you know, well, and I think, too, that so if you think about what it takes to mobilize voters and what it takes to get people energized. So one of those things is policy issues. Right. So, sure, we can get mobilized around an important policy issue to us. But part of that as well is also seeing people in potential leadership positions who are kind of like us. So like I think about, you know, 2008 on Obama, that election turnout went up amongst groups that normally do not turn out to vote. African-American right. voters, Latino voters, younger voters, they were mobilized by Obama and his campaign worked really hard to mobilize voters, but also he was able to get people feeling energized about things. And I think about, you know, Canadian elections who we haven't had the same kind of, of person saying to some extent, yes, in the sense that he's the first racialized major party leader um, to run an election. And I think that that did mobilize a lot of people. Um, but I'm even thinking about, so the 2015 election, um, one of the big kind of uh, campaign ads put out by the conservatives at the time was about Justin Trudeau not being ready. He's too young. He's too junior. He's not ready. He's not ready. Um, and yeah, he was young. He's pretty junior. But I know a lot of young voters. I remember being out. Well, I, te I teach students. So I'm around young people all the time. A lot of them were really pissed off at this whole he's not ready business. And voters who maybe weren't liberal voters in the past or who were first time voters, but their parents were not liberals or whatever, were really motivated to vote because they were angry about that message. And they saw a person who was more like them than Stephen Harper, for example. And so I think we're mobilized by the fact that, that they felt like somebody like them was being told, you can't hack this because you're too little. And that pissed them off and that got them engaged as well. So anger is very motivating, right? And so if if we can get, if parties can get young people angry about policy issues, angry about social justice, angry about, you know, representation, whatever the issue is, I mean, all politics is exciting if you make it exciting, right? right. Um, then I absolutely think that they can mobilize voters and that the they're just not taking those voters seriously enough and they're not bothering to engage them. It's like that okay boomer thing too. Or the, exactly. Yeah, they're just not being taken seriously. And yeah, and that's why, you know, an election campaign that's coming up with two people in their 70s, maybe not is the most, <laughs> you know, in terms of reflecting, so yeah, in terms of like <laughs> reflecting uh, where the country is going is, is may not, uh, you know, always, always do that. And I just want to sort of finish with this idea. You, you talk about getting people angry. That's one of the things I actually am worried about, though, is how angry some people are. And, you know, when, when you talk about angry, I, I'm my fear when I look at political discourse is that the anger is at other people. And yeah. when somebody feels differently about uh, an issue or even a leader, that our reflective reaction is, I don't like you. I'm angry yeah. at you. And, and the fear that I have is as we continue to increasingly go inside our own silos of information, that it becomes nearly impossible to engage. And mm -hmm. the idea of a middle ground or anyone who is moderate in some way is getting phased out as a result of this. And I just fear that we're going to be in a perpetual state of our daily lives are like the House of Commons, where we're sitting apart from each other and yelling back and forth. And yeah. that's, you know, so I get that anger is a motivation, but, you know, I feel as though it does have to be used judiciously, no? Well, so, I mean... I'm not going to disagree with you about that. I do think that, you know, polarization is, is increasing. I mean, it's, it's visible in the United States where, you know, Republicans don't want to marry Democrats and vice versa, um, which that's a, a crazy metric, right? The idea right. that partisanship can keep you away from marriages in the way that, you know, once upon a time, race and religion were the key factors of that right. um, is, is remarkable and, and not positive, right? Yeah, because no, we, yeah no more James Carville's and uh, Mary. Yeah, um, absolutely. I, I our last name. And that's, yeah. not, that's not a good world. You're right. You're, you're right about that in the sense that, you know, knee jerk polarization is not positive and is not helpful. Um, um, parties are useful because they provide signals, because they provide information. They shouldn't just be a filter through which we absorb information. They should be providers of information and we should be able to, be able to disagree in ways that are constructive and, and like it's it's and 
so we it's easy to see in the United States, but it's happening here in Canada as well, right? I've got some some data that show that over time partisans have become more negative, for example, about the leaders of other parties than before. So it right. used to be that we could evaluate leaders across parties in a reasonable kind of way, and now we're just kind of more negative about the, the leader of the other party than we used to be in the past. So the polarization is happening here too. Um, anger is not the problem in and of itself. The problem is that we don't seem to have the ability to move beyond the kind of sports team mentality. Um, and that if we're combining the frustration over policy issues with kind of finger pointing and blame, I think that's problematic. And I think that that's not really healthy. I mean, politics, the whole point of we all disagree and that's normal. Like That is politics. And disagreement can lead to learning. Disagreement can lead to discussion. Disagreement can lead to engagement. It can, it can energize us. But it can also do the opposite, right? We can become disengaged when it becomes too angry and too and too negative. Um, so there's a happy medium. I don't have the answer to this question. I do think that anger is not a bad thing in and of itself, if you know it's channeled well and if it's if it's used for good instead of evil. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but how do you how do you make that happen? I, I don't know the answer to that question. Yeah, it's, it's, it certainly is a tough one. And uh, yeah, it's it, it's sort of the great question of this political time. And, and who knows, the, the current circumstances might lead us to be nicer yeah. to each other. Who I knows? mean, we're seeing a lot of cooperation right now, right? And this yeah. is happening across provinces where parties are coming together to work on plans to get Canada and the different provinces around the world through this crisis. Um, because this crisis is not a partisan crisis. This crisis is a crisis crisis. Yeah. And I think that there's a lot of policy issues that are like that and that could benefit from all party committees on issues. So like mental health, for example, there's no reason that that's part of an issue, right? right. So yeah. if we can find ways to work together, that's a good thing. Yeah, and publicize the, the ways we work together too. You know, I, I, I was struck by something that I think it's like 90% of bills in the United States that get through the House of Representatives are bipartisan bills, mm, but yep. nobody talks about them. They talk about the 10% that are argued about. Absolutely. Right. So if we focus on, you know, there's way more that, that unites us, right? You're, you're way mm -hmm. more like your neighbor than you're not like them, even if you vote for different parties and that's okay. Yep. Yeah. That's sort of my plea, plea Although, for kindness. It shows that increasingly we're moving to neighborhoods where people who live there are like us. So we're right. we're clustering, which is also not a good thing. <laughs> no, yes. It, it's good to be challenged, right? And and to to think of other ways of doing things. And yeah, right. at the end of the day, you know, if you're liberal, the, the people on the conservative side, you know, I think for the most part, you know, have the same concerns as you do, right? Everyone wants to, you know, be safe and you know, go to work and to provide for their family and, and those sort of core values and those core beliefs of things that we want to do in our lives. I think they're pretty universal, mm -hmm. but I don't know, maybe the polls yeah. say something else. I, I don't, nope, I, don't know. I wouldn't say. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, Amanda, thank you so much. Uh, people, I would certainly encourage people to go out, uh, as I said, the, the first book platform or personality, the role of party leaders in elections, but you've done a lot of other work since then. Your most recent, uh, edited collection that, that you were the editor for a uh, very interesting, uh, mothers and others, the impact of family life on politics. And that's something else that we are increasingly seeing more and more mm -hmm. come to the forefront in this a contemporary situation is with schools being closed, daycares being closed, sort of the, yep. the, the burden, uh, I don't know, burden might not be the right word of, of, uh, parenting or the, the primary task of parenting and, and just domestic work in general, that's being reanimated as an issue. So certainly, uh, I, I would assume Amanda that, you know, if people go there, there's going to be a lot of stuff that, uh, is certainly relevant to right now. Totally. Yep. That book brings together um, papers from a lot of different scholars from around the world. It's, it's actually, I mean, it's weird to say out loud this, but I think it's a really good book. <laughs> it's really cool research. <laughs> yeah, you're allowed yeah, to say Why can't you highly, say that? Highly recommend. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and as the, the article in 2018, Leaders Always Mattered, The Persistence of Personality in Canadian Elections. That's available through Electoral Studies. And there's a link through uh, the... Memorial University of Newfoundland and Labrador, uh, your page on that site, there's a link to that as well, which appears to be open access to me, but I'm logged in through my UOttawa account right now. Is that open access? I'm not you know? sure, to be honest. Okay. Um, 
Well, we would encourage everybody, if you can, go go read that one as well. So uh, Dr. Amanda Bittner from Memorial, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. This was fun. So there you have it. My discussion with Amanda Bittner. And again, I thank her for joining me on the show. Really enjoyed that discussion. Again, wanted to share it again in the midst of this campaign. And of course, I don't care who you vote for. Makes no difference to me. I do think, though, that it's important that we all get out and participate. I am recording this just after the federal leaders debate, the much panned federal leaders debate. Uh, I don't think I've seen anyone who enjoyed that format. And with that, polls are open. They start on September the 10th if you want to vote early. And the locations will be on your voting card that you should have received already from Elections Canada. You can also vote at any Elections Canada office across the country during opening hours up until September the 14th. You just go in, say, I want to vote and uh, have your ID and they'll let you vote. And of course, you can vote on September the 20th and do check the times of polls. I know they change or are different depending on where you are across the country. Make sure you know your polling location. And of course, there are laws in place, rules in place that require employers to provide time for you to vote. If you are say a shift worker and we're 12 hour shift, there are laws on the books that do require employers to provide that time. So make sure that you have the opportunity to have your voice heard and we'll see how it all plays out on September the 20th. So that will do it for this week. Thank you everybody for listening. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show wherever it is you get your podcast, do likes, rating, comments, all that good stuff helps us keep the show growing, helps other people find out about us do head on over of course to activehistory.ca under the podcast tab you can find all of our past episodes as well as all the great material that's been coming out on the blog as we are into september back into the swing of things over there on activehistory.ca and do feel free to reach out to me to let me know what you want to hear on the show historyslam at gmail.com you can find me on twitter at the sean graham we are on the march to 200 episodes, not counting repost. We've done 191 of these. And next week will be 192. That one's already recorded. Very much enjoyed that one. Looking forward to sharing that with everybody out there. And uh, then we'll just keep it going. We will be at 200 by the end of the year. Some exciting stuff coming up. So do make sure you subscribe. So that's it for this week. Thanks again, everybody, for listening. We'll be back with you again next week. But until then, if you're out, and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.